This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Clinical Presentations of Substance Intoxication and Withdrawal. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Every year, there are nearly 100,000 overdose deaths in the United States, largely due to opioids, particularly synthetic opioids like fentanyl. We see double that number of non-fatal overdoses, and that's probably an underestimation, as many cases don't even reach the healthcare setting. Annually, it is estimated that substance use disorder costs hospitals $13 billion, with overdose death rates having tripled in the past two decades. Drug overdose is now the leading cause of injury-related death in the United States, and unfortunately, many are preventable. At the end of 2022, Congress passed the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023. Part of that bill removed the federal requirements for an X waiver to prescribe medications like buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. It also created new requirements for all prescribers. Since June of 2023, all controlled substance providers, prescribers applying for or renewing their DEA licenses must attest to completing eight hours of training on the treatment and management of patients with opioid or other substance use disorders. Here at OSU MedNet 21, we have several webcasts that will satisfy these requirements and bring you the most updated evidence-based knowledge. Today's program will be covering clinical presentations of substance intoxication and withdrawal. And for this topic, I've invited two of Ohio State University's addiction medicine specialists to share their expertise. First, I'd like to welcome back to the program Associate Professor of Psychiatry, Dr. Julie Teeter. Julie founded and runs the Addiction Medicine Fellowship at OSU and is the medical director for the Health System Addiction Medicine Service. 
She also serves the, on the state governor's advisory board, Recovery Ohio, working to improve mental health and substance use prevention, treatment, and recovery. I also would like to welcome back to the program Dr. Emily Kaufman. Emily is an associate professor of emergency medicine who is also trained in internal medicine. Additionally, she is board certified in addiction medicine and has championed the medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder in the emergency department. Julie and Emily, thank you so much for coming back on the program. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Now, Julie, um, is substance intoxication or is withdrawal the more worrisome of the two, or does it really depend on the, on the substance? Definitely depends on the substance. So for example, with opioids, intoxication can be life-threatening, can be dangerous. That's how um, every, you know, patients are overdosing. Mm -hmm. um, and withdrawal, while incredibly uncomfortable, um, is typically not life-threatening. Uh, for alcohol, both intoxication and withdrawal can be life-threatening, so it depends a lot on what substance we're talking about. Okay, now Emily, unfortunately I've been hearing in the news about new drugs like xylazine. How bad are these novel agents? Unfortunately, the illicit drug supply is increasingly more lethal, and xylazine is one example, and I will talk about it a little bit later in our presentation, but it's, in short, it is an animal tranquilizer um, introduced from Puerto Rico, maybe in the early 2000s, and it's, and it's meant to, we think, prolong the effects of fentanyl, but unfortunately, mm -hmm does not respond to naloxone and we cannot detect it on routine drug screening. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Now, if you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu.edu slash mednet21. In addition to today's webcast, we have a variety of additional programs on substance use disorder and pain management that will satisfy your DEA requirements. These include addiction, stigma, and person-first language, assessing and addressing complex pain, opioid-sparing perioperative care, and buprenorphine treatment. We also have several more upcoming programs in the next couple of months on these topics, so please be on the lookout for those. If you have any questions about today's program or about any of our programs, please don't hesitate to send those to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast. You can also listen to the audio-only version of our programs on your daily commute by downloading or streaming our podcast, which is OSU MedNet 21. Now let's get started. Julie? Thank you. All right, so we will be discussing the initial assessment of the undifferentiated intoxicated patient or patient in withdrawal. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about drug testing and what you will and likely will not find on a standard drug screen. Um, and then we'll go substance by substance and talk about intoxication and withdrawal syndromes, as well as any FDA-approved medications for the treatment of intoxication and withdrawal, as well as the use disorders. So um, why talk about addiction? Um, the uh, you know, unfortunate reason is because um, it's life-threatening and very common. Um, so... Uh, about one in seven people in the United States um, report a lifetime prevalence of a substance use disorder. Um, in emergency room care, um, it's incredibly uh, common. Up to 50% of all um, emergency room presentations are related to substance use. Uh, and it is not just restricted to any one setting or one system, right? So substance use disorders have high correlations with uh, you know, infectious disease, 
um, you know, liver issues, kidney issues, etc. Um, addiction is also a common problem among physicians and other healthcare providers. So knowing both, you know, how to get your colleagues help and, you know, what to look out for is also an important uh, part of addiction treatment. Um, so uh, patients who are presenting with substance intoxication withdrawal may have other symptoms or, or have symptoms that mimic other conditions, right? So, um, you know, an obtunded patient can be secondary to alcohol intoxication, but also, um, you know, could be from hypoglycemia, for example. Uh, so even if patient intoxication is suspected, they should still receive you know, standard of care in the emergency room. So vital signs, you know, history that you're able to get, physical examination, any collateral information, laboratory tests that may help um, elucidate really what you're, you're looking at. I guess I would say, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is that it can be a both and, right? So they can be intoxicated and also have hypoglycemia or hepatic encephalopathy um, or, you know, sepsis that's making them delirious. Um, I would keep in mind that checking your prescription drug monitoring program, which in Ohio we call ORS, um, it can be an important part. Um, this may tell you what other kind of medications they could be taking chronically or that they may have had access to. Um, the flip side, uh, I would keep in mind that many things do not show up on ORS, right? Obviously any illicit substances are not on ORS. Also things like um, methadone prescribed by an opioid treatment program do not show up on an ORS report. Um, so. While it can be helpful, it's also not the be-all, end-all of your only source of information. Um, you know, for patients with suspected intoxication or withdrawal, urine toxicology testing is um, likely recommended. Um, I say urine for a few reasons. Um, that's usually our, our first go-to. It has you know, relative ease of collection, it's non-invasive, and it actually has a longer detection window than blood. Um, also recognizing that for an obtunded patient, something like uh, you know, blood may be easier to get than a urine sample. Um, oral fluid testing can be helpful and, and easy to get also. Um, however, I would talk with your lab about whether you have that testing capability available. Um, hair testing is uh, not very quick, so more difficult in this kind of situation and would give maybe more a history of substance than what's the intoxicating substance right now. Um, from at most hospitals, uh, an initial 10 panel Screening via immunoassay is, is the most common. Um, keep in mind though that immunoassays are good as screening tests, but they do have high cross-reactivity and can have false positives. So if there's a reason that you need to know um, for sure if this is the substance, then um, going to, uh, you know, chromatography testing is important. Um, the 
other thing I'll say about a 10 panel is um, keep in mind what does and does not show up in your own 10 panel. So, um, you know, uh, over a decade ago when the use of oxycodone became prevalent, um, that actually we at OSU added that to our 10 panel because that does not show up as a general opiate. It's a synthetic opiate and doesn't, you know, light up the, um, the general opiate screen. I'll say that um, at OSU right now, five of the 10 drugs in our 10 panel are opioids. Um, you know, the general opiate screen, but also oxycodone, buprenorphine, fentanyl is a separate test um, that many um, hospitals don't necessarily have in their 10 panel yet. Um, so methadone, buprenorphine, oxycodone, uh, fentanyl, and general opiates are the five in our panel. Um, so yes, it's important to know um, what's in your specific labs or hospitals 10 panel. Um, as I said, the opiate screen only catches morphine or codeine-based compounds. So heroin is a morphine uh, derivative and that will show up, but our current drug supply is um, you know, contaminated with fentanyl. I'll say here locally, there's very little heroin, um, actual heroin, it's mostly fentanyl. And so um, just keeping in mind uh, what you're looking for. All right, so um, we'll talk a little bit now about specific substances. Um, presenting signs of alcohol intoxication can include uh, you know, slurred speech, unsteady gait, um, impairment in tension or memory as it gets to higher blood alcohol levels, uh, you know, stupor and coma. Um, they may smell of alcohol or report recent alcohol use. Um, testing a blood alcohol level can be important, um, particularly, again, in, this, in the undifferentiated patient when you're trying to figure out um, what may or may not be going on with them. Um, you know, they may smell like alcohol, but actually have a, a very low blood alcohol level. And at that point, you want to be looking for other reasons why they're obtunded, let's say. Um, blood alcohol can be obtained by blood, or if you have the um, correct machinery, you know, breathalyzers are available in hospital settings as well. Um, so... Uh, depending on what BAL we're talking about is where you'll see different clinical effects of alcohol. So initially, um, you know, being more uncoordinated or increased reaction time, as well as changes in mood behavior, um, you know, mental status. Um, as you get above two and 300 is where we get into um, you know, what can be dangerous intoxication states um, with ataxia, you know, changes in body temperature regulation, um, becoming obtunded, et cetera. Um, the danger at the high blood alcohol levels is that they would not be able to protect their airway. And so um, at times at those high levels, you have to um, give airway support. Um, they can also aspirate at that level if they were to vomit. 
Um, the you know, high BALs can be life-threatening. You want to keep an eye on you know, their ABCs, right? Um, most typically, supportive care is all that's needed. Um, alcohol is processed pretty consistently, patient to patient, um, typically thought to uh, drop about 20 points an hour. Um, sometimes even a little faster if um, patients have chronic alcohol use disorder. Um, one thing to always keep in mind, if you are going to be giving, you know, IV fluids with glucose, you always want to give thiamine first in order to prevent um, Wernicke-Korsakoff. Um, you know, again, at these very high levels with, say, accidental intoxications in children, um, hemodialysis can be used to remove alcohol. Um, other things to keep in mind, uh, if, say, someone, you know, very much looks like they have alcohol intoxication, but you're not getting a BAL, that there are non-beverage alcohols um, that can be tested for as well. There's like a at least we have a, like a specialized alcohol panel that can try to pick up some more of those. Um, all right, so um, as I said, uh, you know, uh, alcohol actually undergoes zero order metabolism, which means, again, pretty much everybody metabolizes it at around the same rate, um, around 20 points an hour. Um, the legal limit in most states is 0.08 uh, for those over the age of 21. Um, however, I would keep in mind that for patients with chronic alcohol use disorder, um, they do not have to be at a BAL of zero to start having withdrawal. Um, they can start having withdrawal even with a change or drop in the blood alcohol level. Um, so keeping an eye for that switch from when we're moving from intoxication to withdrawal can be a very fine line uh, in patients with chronic AUD. Um, when that switch happens, the alcohol withdrawal syndrome is generally the opposite of what alcohol intoxication is, and that's true for really all of our, our substances. The intoxication syndrome is one way, and the withdrawal syndrome is typically about the opposite. Um, so in alcohol withdrawal, you get elevated, um, usually blood pressure, as well as tachycardia, tremulousness, not being able to sleep. They can have um, auditory, visual, or tactile hallucinations or illusions. They may understand that those things aren't um, actually happening um, and have some insight into that, or they, they may not. Um, anxiety and then, you know, like delirium and seizures can also follow. Um, the pathophysiology of alcohol withdrawal, or, or why this happens, um, alcohol is a CNS depressant that acts on GABA. GABA, we remember, as our inhibitory um, neurotransmitter, and so you have, you know, excess inhibition. When you take away the alcohol, you're taking away the inhibition, which pushes us towards an excitatory state sort of in that balance. And so the withdrawal symptoms that we see are a result of this, you know, 
move towards the excitatory state and glutamate. Um, as far as timeline goes, um, you know, depending on BAL and their history, they can start getting withdrawal symptoms in as few as six hours from last drink. Um, alcoholic hallucinosis uh, can be really within that first 48 hours. Um, same with, with seizures and then the delirium and delirium tremens, alcohol withdrawal delirium and delirium tremens um, can be in kind of that two to four day range. You don't have to have had um, one step to go to the next. So just because they didn't have seizures doesn't mean they won't become delirious. Um, alcohol withdrawal is one of the withdrawals that you can die from and it often does need to be monitored in an inpatient setting. Uh, the gold standard for the treatment of alcohol withdrawal are benzodiazepines. Um, we have a variety that are, are uh, available and the good thing is we have multiple um, routes of administration depending on the patient's clinical status. Um, in the hospital, barbiturates can also um, be used, but uh, on the test, I always tell the you know the trainees that the answer is always benzos. Um, all right, we do have uh, three FDA-approved medications for the treatment of alcohol use disorder. Um, Antabuse is probably the most well-known and the least commonly used today. Um, patients often know Antabuse. Um, this is the medication that gives aversive symptoms if alcohol is ingested. Um, we have mostly moved now to naltrexone and acamprosate. Um, naltrexone is available both oral and in an IM monthly version. Um, it is an opioid antagonist, so you need to make sure the patient is not on any other opioids that you would precipitate withdrawal. Um, it works with your endogenous opioids to help decrease the reinforcing effects of alcohol. You do have to keep uh, an eye on liver functions, um, but generally it actually helps liver functions because the patient is not drinking. Um, so just a, a note there, acamprosate is, um, works through your GABA system as well as um, glutamate system. Uh, probably the biggest downsides it, downside is that it's dosed three times a day, which can be difficult for patients um, to keep up with. Um, however, it is not hepatically conjugated and it is renally excreted. And so for those, um, say with very severe liver problems, you know, sometimes can be a, a good first option. All right, so moving on to benzodiazepines. Um, benzodiazepine intoxication withdrawal is very similar to alcohol withdrawal. Um, and then the treatment is very similar. So both work on GABA. They work on um, your GABA transmission slightly differently. Um, but again, similar intoxication withdrawal syndromes. Um, benzodiazepine similarly in the withdrawal can be life-threatening, so something to uh, take seriously for sure. Um, the one big difference between them is that, as I said, alcohol is very kind of predictably metabolized. Benzodiazepines much less predictably metabolized. And so the time course of when you see withdrawal and how severe that is depends on 
what Benzo were talking about, how much they were taking, how often, and then also some, you know, genetically, what's their own metabolism pathways. Um, the other thing that sometimes comes up is risk of seizures is higher in those withdrawing from benzodiazepines. So, you know, up to like 10 times more common. Um, and there are no FDA approved medications for the treatment of benzodiazepine use disorder. So a couple key things to keep in mind. All right, um, moving on to opioids. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult these days to um, you know, turn on the news without hearing something about the opioid epidemic. Um, you know, we're losing tens of thousands of people per year to opioid overdose. Um, the opioid intoxication syndrome is usually uh, really marked by pupillary constriction as well as you know change in attention. So this drowsiness or coma, slurred speech. Um, one thing again that sometimes comes up on a on a test is you can get pupillary dilation if they've had an anoxic brain injury, like a blown pupil, for example, from severe overdose. So um, you know when in doubt, give. Narcan, that is the antidote, naloxone, um, given IM, or uh, also available intranasally. Um, that it can, you know, very rapidly within a minute reverse the respiratory depression if that's the the main cause um, of the respiratory depression. Um, when patients move into the withdrawal phase, which they likely will if um, you give them naloxone, for example, um, to reverse their overdose if they have a, an ongoing tolerance um, or with time following um, opioid withdrawal um, or as they move into withdrawal. Um, anxiety, dysphoria, um, nausea and vomiting is incredibly common as well as stomach cramping. They'll complain of like a flu-like syndrome with muscle aches, uh, sweating, chills, hot flashes, not being able to get comfortable, um, get watery eyes, runny nose, goosebumps, um, diarrhea, yawning, and difficulty sleeping. Uh, opioid withdrawal, while itself is not typically life-threatening, it's exceedingly uncomfortable, and patients' brains really become incredibly attuned to any symptom like this and it really sets off kind of the, the craving cycle. Their brain actually begins to believe that the primary need for survival is this substance. And so the drive to avoid withdrawal is incredibly high. Um, the time course of when withdrawal starts really does depend on what substance we're talking about. Um, you know, for shorting act, shorter acting substances, you know, you can see it within the first day. Now that, again, the primary um, illicit opioid we're seeing is fentanyl, that can be more like one, two, and three days until patients start going into withdrawal or till their withdrawal is serious enough, to, serious enough or severe enough to be able to start medications for opioid use disorder, particularly buprenorphine. Um, medications that have a longer half-life typically have a less severe withdrawal syndrome, but a longer duration. And so that's a, another thing to keep in mind as far as the, the timing of being able to start medications. Um, as far as what the treatment of withdrawal is, typically we are 
recommending um, a medically supervised withdrawal or induction that can be inpatient or outpatient with opioid agonist treatment. Um, we have two that are approved for opioid use disorder, methadone and buprenorphine. Um, there are also medications that can help treat some of the, the symptoms of the withdrawal. So things like um, clonidine, you know, uh, Dicyclamine, hydroxazine, trazodone, um, lopiramide are, are targeting the different symptoms that, that the patient has. Um, we have three FDA approved medications for the treatment of opioid use disorder. Um, probably the oldest and in some ways best known is methadone. Um, it's a long-acting mu agonist. However, it can only be done in an opioid treatment program setting. That's your traditional methadone clinic, um, you know, sometimes called opioid treatment program, narcotics treatment program, um, and that's where you go for daily dosing most commonly. Um, we also have the ability to do it in the acute hospital setting per the DEA, um, but at discharge, they would have to move to one of those OTP settings. For buprenorphine, um, we've got a handful of formulations now, um, both oral, most commonly called Suboxone or Subutex. We also have um, injectable formats. So Sublocade is available as a monthly injection. Brixati is now relatively newly available in both a weekly and monthly injectable formulation um, to give kind of a range of, of dosing options and, you know, routes of administration. Um, th this is approved for what they call OBOT, office-based opioid treatment, which means it can be prescribed um, by now anyone with a DEA license. Um, you no longer need the X waiver. Um, there are no more caps on patient limits. Um, all of that has been an incredible transformation for our field over the last year. Um, lastly, we do have a third option, long-acting injectable naltrexone, uh, which is Vivitrol. Um, as I said earlier, that is an opioid antagonist, so works very directly on the opioid system in this case. Um, it's a monthly shot. The one thing to really keep in mind is you have to be completely off all opioids, usually for seven to 10 days before being able to initiate this um, because otherwise it will precipitate withdrawal. At this point, I will transition uh, to Dr. Emily Kaufman for her to continue educating us <laughs> on other substances. Great. Thanks, Dr. Teeter. So I have the tough job of actually covering sort of a potpourri or, or more or less everything else in the illicit drug market, which is ever-changing. Um, for today's discussion, I'm going to focus really pretty largely on stimulants. Um, next, probably marijuana, with briefly covering something called bath salts or synthetic cathinones, um, hallucinogens, and inhalants. Um, as we see, you know, it's interesting we gave this talk did this about three years ago, and, and the illicit drug market has changed so much even from that time. So three years from now, I, you know, I hate to even predict what's going to be out there because I feel like we are battling that day in and day out. So I'm going to start with stimulants because I think most regions, I can say particularly here in Columbus, cocaine has always been there, will continue to be there. Unfortunately, it's become more lethal 
as our um, illicit drug supply has been increasingly cross-contaminated with the synthetic opioid fentanyl, leading to a, a market increase in our overdose death rate, unfortunately. But, but cocaine has been around for a long time. Um, it is actually a plant-based stimulant, came from the coca plant from South America. It's actually a Schedule II drug, can be used topically by uh, many ENT docs. Um, for intranasal procedures. has a lot of street names. I just included a, f a few here, blow, coke, crack, rock, snow. But if you look at the DEA's website for uh, slang, you'll probably find about 300 or 400 terms referring to some derivative of cocaine. It can be uh, snorted or insufflated. It can be cheeked, um, smoked most commonly, or even injected. And that's pretty rare to inject cocaine, but most commonly it is. Um, snorted as a powder or smoked as the, as the um, crack cocaine product. In terms of signs and symptoms, and these will be similar across um, the stimulant category, they are the go drugs. Um, in the emergency department, we have to recognize different toxidromes or syndromes, and these are our go drugs. So we get a burst of norepinephrine, so kind of the hyperagenergic response. Patient's blood pressure can skyrocket, their heart rate goes up, they're breathing quickly. They may or may not have dilated pupils, that'd be more, the more classic isolated intoxication, and definitely have vasoconstriction leading to a lot of complications. In terms of mechanism, um, and this is be common across a lot of our stimulant categories, they will block the reuptake of the dopamine um, in the neurotransmitter. And this next slide, referring to the picture, is actually showing our synapse. Cocaine is the sort of white molecule, um, and the orange circles are actually the dopamine. And cocaine will actually block a receptor that, that blocks sort of that return of the dopamine back into the transmitting neuron. So you have more dopamine, and dopamine is our reward or euphoric uh, neurotransmitter. So it's GABA was the inhibitor. Dopamine is the craving. I've got to have this. I'm going to keep seeking this drug. This is makes all those endorphins go way high. So a lot of these drugs are working on dopamine. Dopamine is sort of the magic neurotransmitter in addiction medicine. Um, and it, you, you have more energy, you are gonna drop your inhibitions, you're not gonna be hungry. Uh, when you use cocaine specifically, the most rapid onset is probably if you're smoking it, like the crack cocaine product. But it's, it's fast on, but it's fast off. So many of these folks are using it repetitively. Um, uh, with insufflation or snorting it, it's a little bit slower onset and it maybe lasts a little bit longer, but again, a lot of these folks are going to use repeat dosing. Obviously, if you inject, that's probably going to be the fastest too, but with cocaine in particular, that's not as common route of administration. And chronic use for, again, a lot of these drugs, the dopamine, uh, you know, based on homeostatic mechanisms in the body, those receptors will be down-regulated and you're going to need more of the same substance to maybe not even make necessarily get the same effect, but to get a effect or not get very sick. Complications of cocaine use would be many of the complications from the vasoconstriction response, the hypertensive urgency, emergency response. And unfortunately we see, we can see stroke, ischemic stroke, hemorrhagic strokes. We see cardiovascular events, particularly MIs. You can see aortic dissection, seizures, more commonly dehydration. Occasionally we see rhabdo um, if, somebody's really has used over a very short period of time. Um, I did include the, the term excited delirium really should probably have been modified here. This is not actually an accepted term and uh, by emergency medicine or the psychiatric um, organizations these days, but there is a state 
what is it? it's an extreme um, state of agitation. There can be psychosis associated with it. The patient can be very dangerous to themselves and others, and it can re require excessive um, amount of medications to control their behaviors. A lot of this uh, terminology has changed in light of George Foreman and other um, events with police and medics interacting with patients in the field. But there is a, we do think there's a correlation between stimulants and certain um, uh, profound and severe uh, episodes of agitation that can require above and beyond the normal management with medications. You can get routine, uh, uh, like a septal perforation, you can epistaxis from insufflating. Um, sexually transmitted infections can happen, any high-risk behavior where we're using needles, we're having unprotected intercourse, we're introducing drugs into the mucosa where there may be tears. In terms of how we treat um, or manage patients presenting with cocaine intoxication, the same would go for methamphetamine, which I'm going to go to next. It's really supportive. Um, it's reducing stimuli, turning lights off. They can get dehydrated. We can do fluids, but most commonly we're doing uh, benzodiazepines. Um, sometimes IV, sometimes intramuscular. If they're profoundly agitated, we will add our antipsychotics. Haldol is used, Reperidol is used. Um, for extreme circumstances, we actually will use ketamine as well. And this typically, by using these, will help with their blood pressure control. Uh, cocaine use disorder, particularly if it does develop into a pattern where folks are using it daily, and it does uh, uh, become a full-fledged DSM-5 cocaine use disorder, can have a withdrawal pattern once they stop. That's opposite, as Dr. Tito was saying before, to the intoxication. So it's more malaise, fatigue, eating more, can't, you know, inability to sleep, slowed thinking. Um, unfortunately, there really aren't inpatient withdrawal management programs for stimulant use disorders. And the treatments that we have, even in this day and age with cocaine, you know, have been prevalent for so many years, we don't have any pharmacologic approved medications to treat this disorder. There are many providers who use off-management or off-label uh, medications such as bupropion, Topamax, there are others. I think Anabuse is even used sometimes too. But the mainstay really is uh, behavioral treatments such as contingency management, which is a reward-based program offering incentives, cash, uh, gas cards to encourage abstinence. And oftentimes that is not done for many reasons in the emergency department or inpatient hospital setting, often done in the outpatient setting. Methamphetamine, the sort of synthetic cousin of cocaine, is very similar in terms of mechanism of action with the additional um, advantage in that it increases dopamine release. So in, uh, in addition to preventing its reuptake, it actually increases um, dopamine in the body. And some folks describe it as like a bomb going off in the brain. So you have like an endorphin response with cocaine, with methamphetamine, it's like a thousand times that. Um, we noted it, it, it comes from the pseudofed. The pseudoephedrine is a nasal decongestant. There was a big boon of it in the early 2000s from Mexico with a lot of illicit methamphetamine labs showing up, um, very easy to manufacture. This led to the actually Combat Methamphetamine Epidemic Act in 2005. Again, it has a lot of different street names. Um, if anyone's watched Breaking Bad, I'm sure they've gotten a whole lot of education about methamphetamine production and presentation and supply um, with a Hollywood spin. Uh, again, it can be used similarly to cocaine. You do will see folks with full-fledged disorder who are more commonly injecting this than cocaine. And it has, is listed as a Schedule II stimulant. Um, the difference between methamphetamine and cocaine is that it basically, when it it lasts longer, 
um, and it's more potent. So it's because you get that additional boost with the dopamine release. Um, you know, cocaine can take about an hour. It has like a, a half-life of an hour, whereas uh, methamphetamine is closer to 12 hours. So the complications are similar to cocaine. The one thing about people presenting with acute intoxication with methamphetamine, which you see more um, commonly, is they have psychosis, it seems like. Um, it doesn't mean that folks with cocaine can't have that, but it all depends on their pattern of use. We have a lot more folks who sort of dabble in cocaine. You know, they do it for recreational events, you know, parties. And, um, whereas folks with methamphetamine, it seems to be more of a regular behavior or, or uh, using it with other substances too. And we also see a lot of more chronic complications with cocaine. Um, people who have used it for years, maybe say they've gone to prison for you know, behaviors associated with that disorder. They come out with a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, some type of hypertensive cardiomyopathy. They may have you know, chronic cognitive changes, memory loss, They're, they are a very unstable mood. Um, there are some patients that even come in that have chronic delusions. Um, I, we have patients we've seen that come in, they think they see bugs on their skin and, you know, they may or may not be using methamphetamine, but this is a delusion that carries with them, even if they're no longer using, unfortunately. You'll see the pictures, the poor, uh, dentition, you know, skin changes. We think a lot of that is due to not necessarily the drugs themselves, but the neglect that comes from when they're using the drug, the long onset and the lack of hygiene. And, and a lot of times there's a repetitive like picking behaviors too that happen. Methamphetamine use disorder, um, like cocaine has no approved FDA pharmacologic treatments. Um, there was a 2021 uh, New England Journal Medicine article that actually looked at the medications IM naltrexone and bupropion given to patients over a 12-week time period that showed an increased rate of abstinence, and that was for those with isolated methamphetamine use disorder. Um, so certainly promising, but it's still, we're not in the realm where everyone's using it or that it's FDA approved. And again, we use contingency management. Um, and that slide here is showing a cross-section of a patient's brain um, with dopamine receptors. On the left is the healthy person with nice kind of red and orange um, and they can get back to that normal sort of dopamine response, but it can take quite a bit of time. And that's 14 months gets it close to normal. So it can take much, much longer. And as I mentioned earlier, we've seen an alarming trend as our illicit drug supply has become increasingly cross-contaminated um, and overdose deaths are rising. We think largely due to fentanyl, however, We've seen a big uptick in methamphetamine and cocaine. And particularly since 20, about 2020 nationally, there's been an over 30% increase in overdose deaths with co-occurring methamphetamine and fentanyl, and you know over 20% uh, with fentanyl and cocaine. Locally here, we're here in Columbus, Ohio, and Franklin County, we've seen a big uptick, um, particularly among African-American men, um, and co-occurring fentanyl um, and cocaine overdose deaths. Cocaine has always been ever present in our local region, but as we've seen the drug supply more, um, unfortunately, more people are dying. I'll say briefly, um, a brief comment about MDMA, otherwise known as ecstasy or Molly or X. This is sort of what's considered a club drug, a rave drug. Um, it's uh, been around since the 80s. Uh, typically used at raves because it has both a stimulant and hallucinogen effect. They're, they're brightly colored little tabs that can be ingested. Um, it, use, it 
acts on dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin receptors. Um, and basically, it's meant to be a pleasurable drug. It's, it's, uh, it gives you more energy. It's euphoric. You get a little distorted perception. Um, you, uh, people become hypersexual. They, have, like, they lose their inhibitions. Um, it's meant to enhance the experience. You, typically, it can last for about three to six hours, and oftentimes patients may need a second dose. Um, we don't know necessarily if there's addiction potential because you don't see it that frequently, um, but you can get dehydrated, um, heat stroke or rhabdo um, if you're at a prolonged club and not hydrating. And then the biggest concern, too, is it's rare for these products to be pure. There's usually some other type of you know, stimulant um, or some other type of synthetic product that can be cross-contaminated, which can cause more complications, more psychosis, or in this day and age, even fentanyl, unfortunately. Um, briefly, I will talk about bath salts, which fortunately we don't see as much. In my training, I think Dr. Teeter's training, we were just talking about this, they, I wouldn't say common, but they were more present. Um, and this is a, what's called a novel or new psychoactive substance. Um, it, it originated from something called the cot plant in East Africa. It's a synthetic variant of this, which is a type of stimulant. It goes by a lot of different names, and these names are, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure where they, how, where they come up with them, but um, it seems like the opposite of what would be occurring. But it's bliss, cloud nine, lunar wave, vanilla sky, white lightning. I mean, some of them sound like resort names or something like that. But you can find these sold in, you know, gas stations, um, head shops. Um, they typically will say them not for human consumption, plant food, screen cleaner. Uh, I know I trained in New Orleans. I remember the patients would tell me where, where they would tell me specific gas stations where they could get these products. And it's not just this product. There are other products they'll sell there as well. But it's essentially a cheap substitute for ecstasy or molly. It's, this, and it's a cheaper type of stimulant that can, is unregulated and it would be purchased over the counter. You can smoke it, you can snort it, you swallow or inject it. The problem with it is that it has this metabolite um, that's called MDPV, which is 10 times potent as cocaine, and it has a fair amount of paranoia, hallucinations, and agitation. So the, the folks that we saw when they were coming in, they were, could be quite violent, very paranoid, um, like the most extreme psychosis, and required quite a bit of medication and regulation. So, and there have been many criminal um, uh, events that have been associated with folks who've been using uh, bath salts. So, and really no great treatment plan other than, you know, behavioral modification. So in a way, I'm, I'm really glad we don't see this as much because it was particularly difficult to um, treat these folks. Marijuana is a huge topic. Um, cannabis is all over the literature now. This, it deserves its own uh, presentation, but I will try in a few minutes here to give you a brief overview. But cannabis is uh, multiple plants. I'm just highlighting one plant. Um, and I'm talking specifically about the psychoactive portion of the plant, which is often extracted from um, the buds, the flower. You can get some from the, the actual leaves. But we are talking about the psychoactive uh, component called 9-delta-THC or tetrahydrocannabidiol, or cannabidiol, um, not CBD. CBD also comes from the plant but is not meant to be psychoactive and may have some, uh, you know, uh, decreased inflammatory uh, effects that uh, used topically may help with joint pains. So the plant is quite complex. It has over 500 chemicals, greater than 100 cannabinoids. Um, 
unfortunately, based on data from a 2022 survey that looks at drug use across the United States, uh, cannabis is the most common illicitly used drug. And we know this is going to change. We know we're going to find more complications as uh, states increasingly legalize the use of recreational marijuana. It's used multiple ways. It's smoked. It's ingested. It's vaped. It's dipped into a cigarette. You can use extracts or dabbing, which is the most potent form. These resins can be up to like 80 and 90 percent THC. And that's the big issue with marijuana is that its potency has been markedly increasing over the last, you know, 15, 20 years. And so the product today is not the product that your mom, your dad, your grandparents may have used years ago. It's a much more dangerous product, particularly if started younger. Um, the interesting thing about marijuana is that it imitates in our own body, or we have an endogenous cannabinoid, it's called anandamide. And so THC can actually act on our own endogenous receptors. There are multiple receptors in the body uh, that are cannabinoid receptors, but it particularly targets the CB1, and it acts in almost all areas of the brain. The onset and the effects can depend on how it's taken. So obviously, if you're going to ingest a gummy, it's going to take a lot longer to have an onset versus if you smoke it, which is typically the fastest onset. And particularly if you vape, um, that could be even faster. Um, clinical presentation is usually, you know, there's slurred speech. They can be ataxic. Um, their vitals may be a little bit off. They might be slightly hypotensive, a little tachypneic, a little tachycardic. Their eyes may be injected, may or may not have um, pupillary constriction. Um, they may have some urinary retention. Um, and this is just, this is a slide showing the brain and all the different areas of the brain that can be affected by marijuana, which is just about everywhere. You can have hallucinations, you can have delusions, you get a dopamine response, you can affect memory, cognition, your coordination is from your cerebellum and basal ganglia. You see brighter colors. Um, it's so, it, it can also mimic psychosis too, which is particularly tricky. Marijuana, long-term effects and complications. Um, very controversial, right? Everyone thought that it's the safe drug to use. <laughs> if we're going to use something, we're going to use this, right? But it also is depends on the context of the person who's using it. And for those who have a genetic tendency towards addiction, who are in the right you know, environment, maybe with uh, lack of social support, you know, any kind of uh, PTSD or traumatic history, or even psychiatric um, underlying uh, history. This is not a great uh, drug for that person. There's mixed data about cognition and memory. We know it can make folks paranoid. Uh, not a great drug for somebody who has baseline schizophrenia. Um, it can worsen seizure. <laughs> we see that quite a bit in the emergency room that some, someone may have an underlying seizure disorder, but then they're using recreational marijuana on top of it. And so it often they're presenting with worsening seizures. It can lead to bronchitis. Lung cancer is a big, not sure, but there seems to be more data showing that it may be a risk factor, not so much the THC, but the other products that are um, used within the cigarettes. Um, one area that is becoming more concerning is we see a lot more women using this during pregnancy to treat the nausea and vomiting. Um, and there are now studies showing that it's been associated with low birth weight, fetal anomalies, and developmental delays. Something that I see in the emergency room quite a bit is cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, which is a subset of cyclic vomiting. Um, this is uh, quite profound retching. Uh, folks are using more and more marijuana to treat their symptoms. 
Um, we often have to treat these with antipsychotics, um, and it's not uncommon to see at least one case of this on a daily basis in the emergency department. And we know people are developing cannabis use disorder. Up to 30% of folks using recreational product, um, particularly if they're starting less than 18, can develop a use disorder, which is hard to treat. And unfortunately, a lot of times this can develop into um, polysubstance use disorders too, and they're using other products along with it. In terms of synthetic cannabinoids, it does exist. I think in terms of uh, physicians being most aware, Marinol or Dronabinol is actually an FDA-approved medication for nausea and vomiting um, for use with treatment with chemotherapy and anorexia, but there are also synthetic products, otherwise known as K2, Spice, Kush, Black Mamba, and Chronic. Again, you buy it same places you would buy the bath salts. They can be smoked or you can drink it as a tea. Um, they can be labeled as natural, but uh, you know, obviously they're clearly not. They're synthetic products. Won't be detected in routine drug screens. They will bind to those same CB1 receptors, but they're very unpredictable metabolism. And they oftentimes, uh, these products can lead to more psychosis. I actually had a case when I was training in New Orleans, a, a young man presented almost like encephalitis with fever, you know, hallucinations, psychotic. And, you know, we found out days later after extensive studies, LPs, imaging, he had actually smoked um, synthetic marijuana and it was even dipped in formaldehyde. And so it almost it mimicked an encephalitis presentation. So again, don't see that commonly, but just to be aware. Hallucinogens I'll speak briefly about. Um, they are out there. Um, again, not as common. They're divided into two categories, classic and dissociative. Classic is uh, LSD, psilocybin, and peyote, which act on serotonin receptors, which affect mood, cognition, and perception. Whereas dissociative hallucinogens like our PCP, ketamine, and dextromethorphan um, work on the NMDA receptor, which is cognition, emotion, and pain perception. And there's a little bit of dopamine response there. LSD, or the classic, is typically seen for blotting papers. It's a pill, liquid, or blotting pieces. And it gets, it's slow onset, but it lasts a long time. And we talked about, you know, very altered sensorium. Like you're, you see color, you, you see, you can taste colors. Um, you have altered time perception. Um, in terms of vital signs, it's not terribly different. You might be a little tachycardic, slightly elevated blood pressure, um, sweaty, some vomiting, uh, decreased appetite, and be a little bit paranoid. We don't think you can develop a use disorder with LSD, but you may get uh, flashbacks associated with it or something called hallucinogen persisting perception disorder. Dissociatives are divided into two categories, um, or two, two of the most common is, is ketamine, otherwise known as special K or vitamin K, can be used, snorted, um, be taken as a pill. Unfortunately, it can be associated as a rape drug because it causes immobility, amnesia, it can be uh, pain response. You can have hallucinations with it. The complication with ketamine is that you oftentimes can have an emergency reaction, which is where you're profoundly paranoid, um, you're fearful, you're coming out from um, uh, the medication. We do use ketamine for uh, treatment of depression as a nasal spray, and it can be used for chronic pain. Briefly, dextromethorphan is a cough suppressant, um, and taken in high doses, you can have dissociative sedation. Um, it also can be combined with phenergan and codeine in a drink, or called purple drink or cesurup, um, which has euphoric um, and mildly sedative effects. Lastly, um, inhalants, not as popular now, were popular with teens in the 90s. 
um, using household products like volatile hydrocarbons, um, essentially inhaling them or huffing them can lead to slurred speech, motor incoordination. It's a quick onset. Um, complications can include cardiac injury or neurotoxicity, usually due to um, electrolyte abnormality. Less common though, but just be aware. And very last, I had talked about xylazine earlier as our illicit drug supply is, is emerging. Uh, Trank, you will hear in the news, it's an animal sedative. As I said earlier, it's induced, introduced from Puerto Rico in the early 2000s, more common in the Philadelphia region. We think it prolongs the effect of fentanyl, but it's associated with some devastating necrotizing skin wounds. And nitazines are another category to be aware of. They're a cousin of fentanyl, synthetic opioid. They can be 10 to 40 times as potent as fentanyl. The scary thing is that you can't detect it on a fentanyl test strip and that it will respond to naloxone, but you may need a lot higher doses than our normal practice. Um, and these have been increasingly implicated in drug seizures and uh, coroner uh, overdose death cases. In summary, uh, essentially when you're evaluating patients, whether it's in the emergency department or the outpatient setting, make sure you're taking a complete history and physical, uh, doing a complete history and physical as best possible, um, understanding what the toxicology tests are available in your lab and how to interpret them. Clinical presentations can overlap. Sepsis, acute encephalopathy can mimic you know, many of these toxidromes. So keep in mind, give a full exam, do your labs, and get a history as able. And many of these emerging substances will not show up on our routine toxicology testing. For most of these syndromes, treatment is supportive. And please, 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 as a last final point, don't forget there are medications that are FDA approved to treat particularly opioid use disorder, methadone and buprenorphine, and also for alcohol use disorder. Thank you both so much. That was extremely helpful. And it's um, really, I think, helpful to hear some of the updates that we've been seeing with all of the um, increase in the fentanyl and some other synthetic opioids, and then also marijuana. I'm sure um, you're seeing a lot more of mm -hmm. that, and, and we're definitely starting to see a lot more people using it in the outpatient realm. So thank you both mm -hmm. so much. It's such an important topic. Um, I think we have time just for a final key point for our viewers to take home from our presentation today. So Julie, you want to start us off? What's a final take-home message for our viewers? Substance intoxication and withdrawal is incredibly common, presenting both in the emergency room and primary care settings. Um, and it's important to provide evidence-based treatment um, as these can be life-threatening conditions. And Emily? I would say, you know, understanding your basic toxidrome presentation, understanding what a stimulant looks like, understanding what alcohol and what opioids, how they present, remembering they can overlap, treat them accordingly, and also please warn your patients about the illicit drug supply and the cross-contamination with fentanyl because it's become increasingly devastating and we can save lives. Thank you so much for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive CME credit for watching by logging on to ccme.osu.edu and taking the post-test. Join us next week. We'll be discussing evaluation of chronic nausea and vomiting, and I'm sure we'll be touching on uh, hyperanemesis from cannabinoids there. And that's all for today. So thank you so much for tuning in and farewell until next time.